Hi, I'm Matt. I'm Annie. And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we are watching AMC's Mad Men trying to answer the question, is it still great, Bob? This week we're discussing Season 3, Episode 6, Guy Walks Into an Advertising Agency, written by Robin Veith and Matthew Weiner, directed by Leslie Linklow-Glayer. This episode originally aired September 27th, 2009. Hit movies at the box office that weekend. At number one was still Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. At number two was a new movie that week called Surrogates, starring Bruce Willis, a movie I had definitely never heard of until I looked this up for the show notes. And and at number three, new this week as well, was the remake of Fame. Well, that remake did not live forever because I forgot they remade Fame as well. All right. Hit songs that week. (laughs) Totally right. All right. The number one song that weekend was, can either of you guess? No. That's right. It was still (laughs) I Got a Feeling by the Black Eyed Peas. This weekend, Mad Men, Don welcomes new guys both at work and at home, and Joan mm. says goodbye. Mm. Awesome. Super awesome. Uh, so, Melissa. I don't fully believe that this episode actually <laughs> <laughs> This is not a real TV show. This is the show that helped change the landscape of television and ushered what in a perfect the, joy. its current golden age. <laughs> well, I wish more like golden age TV was like this because this is like absurd and unreal. And yet I feel like if something this like off the wall happened in other like prestige shows, people would be like, oh, too far. I feel like it's a fairly iconic moment. <laughs> I have never seen a meme of this. You haven't? That's no. amazing. You weren't like totally cold. You knew nothing about the the lawnmower and the foot and like I knew nothing about any feet. Nice. The other office people getting the splatter. Well, in the before uh, the lawnmower, you know, climax. Um, so I'm from a very small rural town, and people drive their lawnmowers around <laughs> the town. Yeah. And one of my best friend's mom smokes Virginia Slim cigarettes and she will have one just like dangling out of her mouth while she drives her lawnmower around town. And it is so just charming and delightful to me. And so I was like disappointed. I was disappointed that Cosgrove wasn't smoking a cigarette on his lawnmower because I was like, that would just be so perfect for me. I would just (laughs) love that so much. And then I like had completely forgot about the lawnmower and how much joy I had already gotten from it. And then boom, like even when. Even when she was driving the lawnmower and she was very clearly losing control of the lawnmower, which, like, that's not a thing that could happen. I'm not convinced. But I still didn't expect somebody to be permanently maimed. <laughs> Lois did seem to lose control very quickly. Like, blood splatter all over the junior executives. Like, I just... The imagery alone was so great. I was cackling like a mad woman. I'm so glad you got to go in cold because I remember watching it for the first time and just being like, I'm sorry, what? I think my notes are like, what the fuck just happened? (laughs) (laughs) I texted you guys and I was like, this is not real. The show is not real. (laughs) Because you do kind of like, you kind of forget what show you're watching. 
But hey, it's that season three mix up. Gotta keep things interesting. I don't know how. Yeah. And I don't know how it keeps surprising me. I guess it just like lures me into thinking that like not much happens when stuff happens all the time. Mm. I don't know why I still think that. It's a bit like life that way. <laughs> Grandpa know. Jean died. Yeah. Like two episodes like, ago. Yep. Yeah. Adam Whitman died. Like two seasons so ago. So this guy got to keep all of his other appendages in life. Doesn't get to keep his job though. That that that's kind of shitty and ableist. Just a bit. <laughs> but first, let's talk about the woman who makes the office run. Seriously though, if she wasn't like distracted with having all the feelings and leaving, would this really have happened if Joan was like on? <laughs> yeah, I think she would be like, please step away from the fucking heavy machinery, you lunatics. If nothing else, she would have like given Lois some withering stare and made her feel bad for getting on the machine in the first place and Lois would just kind of slide off like sorry Joan well at this point she's definitely like not my circus not my monkeys <laughs> yeah <laughs> like they, she did no. just cut the cake that they gave her to send her off I know I and that was really frustrating to me for one because like Joan always has to do everything but for two I really think that the character of Joan deserves better writing than for like her to be crying over this in public I think that that is taking her too far down you think I don't like that you think like like she could have cried in the bathroom there's precedent for her talking about that. And that would have already been like horrifying for her because she always already said like, don't. Um, but like at the same time, she in front of everybody. But she I just, doesn't really seem to have any other avenues for all those feelings in, inside her. So like. So Guy being there just could have been that last thing to push her over with the height and everything that comes with the revelations that her husband shared the night before just as a person who likes to keep everything inside (laughs) until it like hardens into a diamond of uh crap all someone needs to do sometimes is just just poke me the right way whoa who do you hate (laughs) i fucking greg (laughs) greg greg's the worst and it's like it never like he just is gets worse and worse and it just doesn't seem like Joan knows and so she has well I'm sure she like knows but she's not as mad about it as I am and so for her to have to be made to cry in public about it too I'm like can Joan have one thing (laughs) it is definitely I think we can definitely blame Greg and a world in which made her think that this was the greatest thing you can aspire to you have to be like the most amazing person to be able to get here and hey you've achieved it congratulations on getting everything you want it's complete crap and greg is the worst a mediocre white man played you yeah so like also sorry joan welcome to the club yeah pretty much but yay roger not currently being the worst or pete I really would have lost my shit if we would have had a scene of Roger being snarky to a crying Joan. I was worried about that for a second. That's probably not. That doesn't say a lot about you if someone expects that of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, we already know he sucks. He was busy having his own um, crisis of his own. He probably didn't even notice Joan was upset and crying because he was dealing with his own redundancy. So. Well, when Roger is like, 
I make my job look so easy. I like I'm being punished for it. I'm like, really? what is your job, sir? <laughs> what do you actually do other than make inappropriate comments? Really? Yeah, dude. But I mean, just to recap, Joan, you know, everyone knows that Joan is leaving. Greg comes stumbling home, one lying about the fact that he told her that he was going out for drinks with the boys. But it turns out it was drinking alone at 2 p.m. Because he sucks. Because no one wants him to be a chief resident. Even though I feel like nowadays everyone is chief resident. I don't know. Uh, And he's basically being told that he is not a surgeon. Which admittedly... Yeah, because he has... Has to suck. No brains in his hands. Yeah. And I've... Well, it's like... Go ahead. When he made that comment about, like, doctors aren't going to write bad things about each other, I'm like, well, maybe if y'all fucking would, then you wouldn't be in this position because you wouldn't have gotten your hopes up and you could have course corrected before you found out that you're shit at what you thought your life was. Like, Yeah, like after the first or second year. Who are you protecting by not telling people the truth about, like, fuck you, doctors. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If anyone would like any more of a deep dive in this kind of thing, which still exists, this sort of culture of protecting each other, uh, feel free to check out the podcast Dirty John. No, no, no. Sorry. Dr. Death. Dr. Death, where at some point a surgeon is so bad that a bunch of other doctors are like, no, we actually have to try to take him down and get him like at least take his license away. uh, At least get his license taken away from him. And they can't. It's really friggin hard, it turns out. But someone should have told him, yeah. like, you're one or two to be like, so I don't think this is going to happen. Year three, even. There's something here about, like, powerful white men closing ranks around each other, even if it's dangerous for public health and safety. <laughs> Although I will say maybe we have come along further because I have witnessed non-white women in a similar position where they're like, OK, we're going to boo you on ahead, even though. Everyone is looking at you and cringing. Yay. So um progress, I guess. I guess. Yeah. I'll say that. More female drone pilots. Woohoo! Woo-hoo. Um, Everyone else gets to be mediocre too. That's all we asked for. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you both a little bit, and I apologize because we're kind of jumping around the, the section in the notes here. Um, but about the the Joan and Peggy scene at the party um and peggy says to joan you told me that if i played my cards and i'm paraphrasing so i apologize but you told me if i played my cards right i could you know get what i wanted and in the context of the pilot from what i remember from season one episode one it's more like the hey you can you know find a relationship and move to the suburbs too like that was kind of the the pattern or the path that Joan was sending out for Peggy then. And Peggy has internalized that comment and is in Joan's, you know, farewell here is like echoing it again and saying, you know, hey, maybe you can take a little bit of credit for helping me get where where I am. And Joan says, I do take a little bit of credit for your success. And I wanted to bring that up and hear both of your thoughts on that. And especially within the context of kind of the question I have first in the notes about who comforts Joan. And where does Joan seek comfort and does she have any avenues for that because she's someone who we've talked about before as being very controlled and like 
you know, lots of other human beings, every human being has layers and there's lots going below the surface. And I, I agree with your read, Annie, about, you know, the, the crying in front of people. It's because sometimes you put, you're, you're bottling everything up and putting so much pressure on yourself to get to not only just be this, who you, other, who you perceive others want you to be or who you need to be. Um, but then the pressure you intensify that and put it on your, on yourself. So I, I really feel like that was where the tears were kind of coming from as well. But yeah, where does what did you both think about that that conversation between Peggy and Joan in the context of Joan seeking comfort and identity and all of that stuff? I really liked it. Um, I didn't think there was anything like really forced or um, not insincere, but there was or or like schmaltzy about it or anything like that. It just seemed like a moment of. Peggy having reached this point where she has more clarity and she recognizes um, what the women around her also go through along with herself. I don't know if it's like full enlightenment here, but I think there's something really lovely about the way that she recognizes that Joan has her own way of being that is different from hers. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that Joan is cold or wrong or different or out to get her in any way. She just recognizes this is this is what it means to to Joan and being in charge and having influence and power and be in her own way in the way that she manages everything has mattered and has been important has somehow lifted up another woman and I I really like that and I think that the impression I got was Joan appreciated that as well because I mean you know you get the cake and everything and it was like oh we're gonna miss you but this was someone who's saying specifically I saw exactly what you did and I appreciated it. Yeah, I don't think that Joan would be. We hear Peggy say to Joan, not everyone is like you, which is something that we've talked about before, that Peggy is going to have her different way of accomplishing these goals because she can't be Joan mm-hmm. because Joan is Joan. Um but I don't think that Joan would be proud of Peggy if Peggy just followed her like point blank directions and didn't do anything um I don't like I don't can't decide what I was like like didn't have any like if Peggy didn't have any like creative solutions to her problems that fit her the way that Joan's solutions fit her you know what I mean mm-hmm. I mean, that entire office is full of secretaries who do exactly as Joan tells them to do and acts the way Joan has told them to do and follow the advice that they um, have and follow her lead. You don't see anyone kind of forging their own path or just in general, like you said, just just doing something different and true to herself. And it was really nice. It was. I wish that we got to know what she was going to say because Peggy was like, if we don't see each other and then she was going to say something. And then there was a horrifying maiming incident. <laughs> Do you think it matters though? No, but you just want <laughs> <I'm just curious. laughs> I mean, considering all the things that Joan does for all mainly the men around her, um, who are above her and who look down at her if they even see her at all, including her own husband. And uh, none of them seem to fully appreciate 
exactly what it is she's done for them except for peggy peggy who's been in her shoes Mm -hmm. it's kind of nice because it always seems like you know you're gonna have the the female characters pit against each other and i appreciate that it it wasn't and i also appreciate that Oftentimes, when there's like this meaningful, mo- like female moment, and Matthew Weiner is involved with the script, I just end up <laughs> feeling like icky and weird. But I didn't get that off of this, and I don't know if it was the writing or just these two amazing actresses getting a moment to just like mm-hmm. be quiet with each other. But it was great, very like low key great. Yeah, I agree. How do you feel about it, Matt? I liked it. It was, it was nice. Um... I've always kind of been fascinated by the um, Peggy Joan relationship based like on what we've seen so far and, and, you know, stuff we will see in the future. And I remember talking about it with someone once and they made the comment that they were fascinated by the ways in which Joan oscillates between kindness to peggy and then unkindness to peggy and and how that that kind of push and pull of of who they are and and their personalities that that tug of war kind of comes at play and it's it's yeah no i it's something that's that's interesting to me and i don't know if that comes from you know me being being a, a a cis dude and getting you know a window into you know, female friendships, and that's not something that, you know, the first time I saw this back in 2009 that, like, I saw a lot, or I, I don't know, we can can talk to my therapist about that later, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's I like it. It was nice. So, probably the last thing, I guess, that we need to hit on with Joan is um, her and Don in the hospital at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I don't know if this was supposed to be funny, but I found it really funny when Don shows up at the hospital and he's like, oh my god, you know, because Joan's covered in blood and Joan's like, I know, it's ruined. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like about her dress. And she says it using the same exact tone and voice that she's like, oh yeah, he's losing the foot. Yeah. And she's like, I called you at that point. I thought he was gonna die. <laughs> like, Jesus. You guys have been through a lot today. It's been, yeah. Um, But I did, I was surprised I wasn't surprised when Don got the call from Sterling Cooper about the incident. I was kind of surprised that it was Joan that called him only because I guess I guess I'm not I don't know. I feel two ways about it because I like Joan respects Don and I think kind of in her mind she views him as like the person who like mm, I guess like culturally runs the office. Mm-hmm. But I was still surprised because Don really has nothing to do with that situation in regards to the org chart. So her calling Don was just, in my opinion, like a purely personal choice, like a, and not anything to do with like the Sterling Cooper of it. It has to do with like the Don and Joan of it. Mm hmm. I thought it was really um, sweet. And then the first thing that immediately popped to mind was like, wow, Don has really good relationships with the women he has never slept with. And that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. That's so interesting. 
Because it's so, it was very sweet with mutual respect, which is not exactly, again, a thing you don't really see between him and a woman he has slept with. You see it with him and Peggy. You see it with him and, and Joan. And it's, it's troubling to see that pattern. Him and Anna as well. Another yep. woman he hasn't been romantic with that has good rapport with. Yeah. So we found his real problem. Um, one thing I did want to point out, though, was in that moment uh, when Guy was screaming his head off with half his foot falling over and blood just pouring out of his shoe. No one did anything but Joan. She's the one who who runs over to him, checks uh-huh. to make sure he's OK, t- tells Lois to get away. She starts designate. She specific. Uh, she specifies people and roles, which is exactly what you do in an emergency like this. Go get the tourniquet, call the ambulance. You get away from here because you're just making everyone feel really bad right now. And she saved his life. Like, why isn't Joan the doctor here? And Greg just stays at home and cooks. I feel like it would work better, except Greg probably doesn't know how to cook. Yeah. I mean, heaven forbid another fucking incident happen at Sterling Cooper because Joan's the only one who has any type of crisis management. Yeah. And then Greg's like, I didn't get to be chief resident. You can't quit. You need to go back to work. And it's like too late. And it's just how trapped she must feel. Right? Because, yeah. Because he's going to want to move to like arkansas or some shit yeah, so he can Alabama. still be a surgeon not only should you rearrange everything right now but also i'm gonna have to move uh far away from the place we love because he's too proud to just be a normal doctor mm-hmm. i mean on like, the one hand i do understand that this is something that he worked and really saw for his future and there's like a whole grieving process to um to accepting this sort of change in life and having to accept that he is not as good at a thing as he can be. Just uh, just on the underachiever life plan, that's exactly how it plays out. But on the other hand, Greg sucks as a person. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't have a lot of, like, grace to give him. And I'm just like, oh, Greg is totally fine being a dangerous surgeon. Yep. Just going to keep doing his thing. Craig probably wouldn't wear a mask either. Yeah. He's like, I have other research. You're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. My personal research has determined that I am a good surgeon. Yeah. And like he... With brains in my hands. On top of that, it's like a really specialized kind of surgery he does. It's all lung and chest, and it's stuff that I personally don't even go near at work, and I've been a nurse and worked in surgery for a while, and it's stuff that makes me real nervous. So, someone like Greg, who is an utter mess, who has no control of his temper and no sense of humility or his own capabilities, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. Yeah. Yeah. Just be okay being a a clinician of some kind, but... And let your wife live her life. So, like, Joan's not going to not be on Mad Men anymore. So was this really not her last day at Sterling Cooper? I mean, we'll see. Don't pretend to answer any of that. Who's just going to sit here in silence, like always? <laughs> <laughs> it's just easier. I don't even know why I do this. Um, moving on... <laughs> Hello, baby Jean. 
Sally Draper's very scared of you. You have your grandfather's name. And Don doesn't like it. Okay, I lost the... Um, He's a ghost. Baby. I lost I lost the Elton John at the end there. I couldn't make her. I should have written that out before. Sorry, everyone, for A, attempting, and then B, for attempting and failing. I apologize. So... A ghost. So Canadian. Baby. Yeah. Um, before we get into the actual... I was just going to say my thing about how when she tells Bobby to bang his head against the wall, I'm like, that's not great parenting. What if he takes you seriously? No. When she's like, only bored people are bored. Only boring people are bored. I'm like, um, have you seen your Instagram lady? I feel like (laughs) you might want to reevaluate that stance. (laughs) Uh, when she said that, I was actually just kind of relieved. I was uh, was just kind of relieved because I thought, well, at least it turns out she's saying this stuff to Bobby too, not just to Sally. She's an equal opportunity, not very good parent. Yeah, fair enough. I thought it was really interesting how Betty was clearly getting frustrated with Bobby and Sally was being, you know, quote unquote, clingy and afraid of the dark and everything. Uh, And at no point did she ever think, oh, I wonder if I should ask her what's really bothering her. Maybe it's the baby brother that has the same exact name as the dead grandfather she loved. I wonder if part of that is just like Betty just wanting to protect the decision she made naming this baby Jean because she can tell that two of her family members don't like it but she's like I'm right this is happening this is his name that is his name that was my dad's name this is the baby's name she's very insistent and I respected that to be perfectly honest I respect it too it's just like a bummer that even after the feelings of Grandpa Jean dying, mm-hmm. Betty still refuses to believe that, like, Sally would have her own thoughts and feelings. Like, Betty just decided that Sally was jealous of Jean and resentful of him, and that's why she was acting out. And it's like, that's a human person with thoughts and feelings. Um, and you've already seen her make some weird choices, so maybe you should just ask the child why she's having night terrors. <laughs> there is something there, isn't it, about how Betty, I don't know, it's like, it's it's kind of um, an old school kind of thought. The way people see children as more extensions of the adults, as opposed to just like whole individual people from very early on. Mm-hmm. And I think we've gotten the hint from before well not so much a hint fairly good evidence in the past that that's how Betty's mother saw her and so Betty keeps is kind of doing that to her kids especially Sally and projecting all these feelings about resentment because she probably resents her own brother and Mm -hmm. it's and she instead of how do I want to put this she seems to get really frustrated and resentful that her kids don't behave like they're just extensions of her, so she just tends to shut them down. The mm-hmm. baby is still this lump that can be adorable and cute and not talk back or disagree with her. So she's so enamored with this baby, too. And it's it's hard not to think that Sally's also picking up on that as well and remembering how much her her mom idolized her to father. And that's probably also feeding into the whole, this is, this is, this is ghost grandma Jean as a baby. 
Yeah, it's very spooky. Um, I wonder if this, like, Sally and Don connection is going to stay as they're making Sally kind of maybe not, like, a main character, but they're making Sally more of a character. Mm -hmm. And, like, her and Don are, like... Sally and Don, you know, they, like, have a connection in this episode. He, like, sees her and, like, levels with her to get her through this ghost baby thing. And I just, like, wonder if this, like, cute partnership and companionship and, like, dad-daughter best friends is going to continue because I would like that. I would like Don to get his shit together before he spends a ton of time with his daughter during her formative years, but, like, I... Totally fair, and yeah, you're right. This is the the second consecutive episode where where they've had that that kind of a moment like that, right? Um, so yeah, I, I hope it continues too. I really liked John in this episode. Yeah, he was delightful. About five minutes of him being cute, I went, "Is is he gonna do something? Are they just putting this in to balance out whatever Don's gonna do later?" No, it's next Probably. episode. No, it's next episode. He's going to do something awful. Oh, it's so cute. And, like, compared to what I was saying with Betty, he actually stops and tries to figure out what her feelings are instead of projecting whatever her his own are. I love it. Damn yeah. It, this, is, this is your little brother. We don't know who he is yet. We don't know who he's going to grow up to be. It's just like, oh. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, so opposite of what Betty is doing to her, too, because Betty's basically saying, like, here you are, child. You don't have grief feelings about your grandpa dying, and you're jealous of your brother. You know, I'm telling you who you are. And Don's like, no, like, kids are a blank slate. This baby doesn't know. We don't know who this baby's going to be, which, like, Sally's still young, too, so it's also, like, I hope that she's internalizing, like, my dad thinks that people can grow and change. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although, Don does seem to be fetishizing the the blank st- slate and becoming a whole person without any baggage. Just a little. I don't well, know why, but... That would be the dream for old Don. <laughs> a little rebirth. That's yeah. all. <laughs> no, I'm just like, kids, kids are smart. And, like, we're talking, like, they are human people with thoughts feelings and emotions and like sally is emotionally intelligent enough to tell the different to be able to feel and tell and understand the difference between what her dad is trying to do and what her mom is trying to do and like oh it's a barbie it's from the baby like Mm -hmm. i'm not saying again as someone who is childless um rickety territory here but um i don't think there's necessarily like anything wrong with with betty giving sally the barbie but it's just like the but like if it's been like hey i still love you and like like more kind of kind of saying oh hey the baby that you know can't talk and can't walk and just eats and poops gave you a present like it just sally sees through that and that's i think why Mm -hmm. she she ditches the doll, right? Kids are smart. If Sally was a different kid, that could work. Or if the issue was truly that she was jealous of the baby, that might have worked. But, like, 
The, she thinks that the baby's a fucking ghost, so saying that the baby's out here controlling fairies is probably not gonna <laughs> Just give the ghost baby more powers, why don't you, Betty? Yeah. Can I just also just point out, as we've uh, acclaimed, um, as we've praised Kiernan Shipka's acting in the past in this show, the moment that she hears that this gift is from Baby Jean, the look of sheer terror on her face while trying to still hold it together <laughs> is so good. It's great. I just really appreciate that moment. And I think that was when I thought, oh, yeah, no, she's afraid of ghost Baby Jean. That's what's happening here. Also, her outfit was super cute. Grandpa Jean's not supposed to be here. <laughs> yeah, and I guess the only other comment I wanted to make, I can give a pleasure with the, all, the whole episode, but I noticed it with most of the, the Drapers at Home stuff. What Gladder does with the lighting in this episode rules, and the idea of like with like all the nightlight stuff and the lighting translate transitions, and then there's this moment where Don, Don and Betty are lying in bed, and this is before the... Uh, the the British folks show up at the office and all that stuff we're about to get into. And when Don thinks that his fortunes are going to to continue to improve based on on what what Bert suspects, he just got this smile on his face. But then the way the lighting is, it's kind of partially in shadow, and it just yeah, it's good. Um, yeah, I liked it. Guess we could have said that for bits and bobs, but I got it out here. So, anyways, the British are coming. <laughs> the British are here. The British are here. And they are, they act bizarre <laughs> at the office. I could not imagine walking in to like a luncheon that turns out to be a reorg meeting and it's being ran by someone who you met 15 seconds ago. Like that just feels like it would just be the most bizarre thing to have happen at work. And then a fucking lawnmower <laughs> runs rampant through the office. Like, everything from the moment the British people show up is just, like, not real. <laughs> yeah, it to- they, it to- totally throws everything off kilter. It's so funny because you can't 100% pinpoint it, but everyone is, you know, you're walking past Kinsey's office and and you're wondering where that music com- is coming from. And you're like, oh, it's it's Ugh. Kinsey and his guitar. And I can't tell if that was on purpose <laughs> or if he really did just happen to have uh, been playing guitar at that moment because he was like the first office they went past after Joan uh, alerted alerted everyone. You don't know with Kinsey. Oh, I definitely took it as him being like, I definitely need these British people to understand my brand. <laughs> They need you to shave your beard. What? Of all the things joke. you could have attacked <laughs> that he held most dear. But in fairness, it was it was Hooker, so it is the kind of bullshit he would have said. It's really funny that he's, he's like, that was a joke. Like, how could we tell? <laughs> he said that in the exact same voice, too. Oh, man. My favorite, though, was how he was, like, nasally announcing, like, listen, this is happening. It won't be repeated, and everyone's just like, "That's not true." We're, we'll repeat it if you need it. <laughs> That's not. True. He loves what they gave him too much has. power. I, yeah. He loves what yeah. little he thinks he has. <laughs> oh my gosh! And then when he uh, he spills about the the surprise party, 
he looked why would you do that hildy was right hildy had the exact correct response and he looked super pleased with himself as he walked off not even like like properly braided or anything just like hmm, throwing a wrench in the whole thing well it's his victory lap right it's like his victory lap right because he won and he and joan have been you know joan's been been handling it as as best as she can but like He's. They had that stuff of like the I'm Mr. Hooker. I'm not John. I don't know how you used to run this place. Blah blah blah. Like that whole tension. So like in that he's like, nana nana boo boo. I won. You're leaving. So like he probably feels empowered by that. Which is so um, weird because it's not out of merit. It's just the fact that she had made a different life choice. Oh, totally. But yeah, yeah. He's just so annoying. I did like how disheveled he was at the at the party when Lois runs over guy with the the lawnmower because like again it's another office party like we saw at the 1960 election and people are getting drunk and making out and whatever and obviously john's been been you know making out with with someone and comes in he's got lipstick on his face and his hair is all disheveled it was i i enjoyed it it was funny he's still he's still not nice to john and i don't like that though (laughs) he's a little weasel can't say that the 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 partners what what are they putnam something in a little low putnam powell no yeah yeah who whichever one mr sheffield is he just doesn't seem very easily impressed by peggy he's just like okay you can go back to work he seems fine with everyone else but this woman who's talking to him not that at any point he ever shows off that he might be a person worth a redemption uh, that, that whole like them touring them around the office like made me uncomfortable just because everyone's like like i i understand that like say hey, hi i'm i'm matt so nice to meet you this is what i do here like like you know validate me and don't reorganize me or don't restructure me or like you know whatever but it's just like i hate that stuff so much <laughs> The false schmoozing. Like, they spend all that time taking their shoes off to go into Cooper's room, and they're like, great, well, hello. We're going to have a meeting later, or have a meeting, and talk to you guys later. Okay, bye. Well, that was strange. Yeah. What do you guys think of that office moment? It was such a weird dynamic. And Don thinking that he was going to get some big promotion. Mm, no one says anything. Oh I mean, do you think that he cooled his jets at all after that? Don? Yeah. Yeah. Or do you still think I mean I get does the does the shave and the reconciliation with Roger happen before or after that meeting in the office? Before. Oh, okay. It's the day okay. before. Yeah, because yeah, Don is like kind of like out of character, I think, from like uh like giddiness, maybe, because he like slaps the aftershave on his face and he like forgives roger and is like i'm over it which like also don i don't know like roger sucks and you're allowed to like forgive him or get over it whenever you want to but he i don't know just like the way he handled it i'm like that's not very nice because roger still has no i guess it's not that it's not nice it's just not helpful because like you don't you still don't have a real friendship with roger because you're saying like we don't have to talk about this i'm over it it's all fine but if you don't ever tell him what it was then like that's not growth that's just i don't know it's interesting too that in that moment that roger compares don to mona right because, like, what does he say? He doesn't like being judged. And where things went wrong, started to go wrong with Mona, was when she started judging people. 
Judging people like, or judging him? Yeah, it's just like fuck off, Roger. Like, yeah, come on, you off, you Roger. know, like you know you're being shitty, and that's why like you don't want or don't like the consequences of your actions, and you don't like being reminded of them because you live in a constant state of denial. It's like fuck off. Like nobody likes being judged, but like there's a difference between feeling judgment and feeling guilt over your shitty behavior. Exactly. Yeah. Like other people's judgment is not what's causing you to feel shitty. It's like you knowing in your soul that you're a shitty person is what's causing you to feel shitty. Dawn's just reminding you about it. Uh, it's probably just Mona having a moment of going, I'm a grown ass woman and my husband is a child. I'm going to start holding him accountable for his shit and him not liking it because he's a spoiled brat. Mm-hmm. She said, I'm not doing this anymore. We're getting a divorce. It, grow up or get out. And he did go running back to his little girl. Slash wife. Yeah. So at that point, no one's really feeling sorry for Roger when he's whining about how he's not even on the damn chart. And when someone points it out, (laughs) no one goes, oh, that's an accident. Uh, And then like explains what his position is going to be. They just continue talking about him not existing on the chart. And they just write him on the chart. Right under Bert. Like, yeah, okay, you're here. This is a, a brief aside, but, like, that whole presentation kind of, like, made me nostalgic for, like, overheads. And, like, you know, you used to have, like, the transparent <laughs> sheets, like, in math class. And mm-hmm. your teacher would, like, you know, write on the with the pen like that. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those moments where it's, like, it's probably, like, smart boards in, in a lot of classrooms and stuff now. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's... Huh. Anyways, one of those I feel old moments, yeah. but we can either I mean, put that at the end or just like cut it out. I had that in nursing school, which was only ten years ago. Fair it enough. Wasn't that long Fair ago, enough. man. Come on now. But yes, uh, yes, it was a very strange day for for Sterling Cooper and Draper. I like that line. Like Harry was kind of classic dopey season one Harry, not cad Harry that he, that we kind of see developing at times. And he's like, "Wait, what just happened? Someone get the number of that bus? What's going on?" <laughs> and then I can't remember if it's if it's Pete or Ken who goes, "We just all got reorganized, and you're the only person who got a promotion." Yeah, he's like, "What? I did? Oh, yay! Um, Good for me." Harry and Kinsey are both like dialed up to twelve. Oh my god. They're so high stressed. <laughs> I I admit though one of my favorite moments after obviously below the lawnmower moment was the jan the poor janitor who's cleaning the blood off the window behind so them and it looks like a scene from Psycho and Harry just starts going pale. It's a really wonderful moment. It's so well done. It's it's kinda like if this and I mean, it's it's Mad Men, so it's not. But this is like this is Mad Men's version of like a horror movie or like a horror episode, in the way that like kind of go back on on rewatch and can you know pick apart some of the language. And it's it's not overt necessarily, but it's kind of like there there's the anticipation of the lawnmower moment because they know they have that coming. And it's like if this is like how Mad Men does horror, it's like Mad Men horror is Cabin in the Woods, mm. right? Mm-hmm, like mm. it's. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It is a very grotesque moment that they've somehow turned into comedy as well. But hey, things can't get boring or stale or anything. We're only in season three. Mm-hmm. And Lane gets to stay. That's, the I guess, one of the other big 
plot points coming out of or plot points. I don't know if it's big or not. The only um, plot point I truly care about. <laughs> this is, we we get Jared Harris gets to stay. He doesn't have to get reassigned and go to India. Um, no, I was just really happy when he was waiting in his office with his spectacles. That for some reason, oh oh okay. Hooker had to remind him to take his spectacles off before meeting with the partners. Maybe that's one of those things where they would have been like, oh, wow, it was nice knowing you. You know, you were a good man in your time, you nearsighted person or whatever. People who wear glasses can't have jobs either now? Probably. They're probably Maybe that Kathy level shaved of a- ableist where they're like, you're imperfect. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, these dudes are wild. They were so sad for Guy because he he might never be able to play golf now. Well, he can't work because he can't play golf. Yep. Like, you can't run accounts sitting? Apparently not. Despite the fact that even Roger had to admit that this kid's got spark, he's a true account man. I just... It's wild that they're like, R.I.P. <laughs> Guy's dead to us. What do you guys think of Guy anyways? I mean, something was going to happen to him. The way they introduced him, you know, like you can't let someone be unmarred on Mad Men, whether it be their personality, their life choices, their foot. (laughs) Had we gotten more of him, he would have, I'm trying to think of like a good analog for like the type of like stock upper class character that I'm kind of like thinking of like a cousin Matthew Crowley no I think Matthew's too nice like I'm trying to think of like who like is kind of nice but actually like bad like like, I'm thinking of like Dickie Merton's kids but like a nicer version of that like on the surface where it's like Dahani Aljamil Something closer to that, closer to that. I, I, I'll, it'll come to me later, but it's just, I think had, had guys stayed around, he would have been very, very much that. I don't know. It's kind of like, like, I want to say Draco Malfoy, but like, that's not exactly accurate, but. We don't I, have I, time. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't Fair think Melissa likes that this much. Out. <laughs> uh, no, there was something about him that was just very much like punching you in the face with this guy. He's so handsome. He's so charming. He's so good at his job. Look at his CV. He even doesn't say he even like says the full version of CV, which is what curriculum day and acting all humble about it. He is their Don Draper, but shinier in a nicer package, like nicely, perfectly upper middle class, probably. It was too much. He couldn't exist in the same universe as Don. He's probably like a couple of rungs below the aristocracy. He's probably very well-bred to be the English Don Draper. I think you have to be well-bred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't just climb the social economic ladder thing. Yeah, no. What's Not no. in the 60s. <laughs> England in 1963? No. <laughs> no, it, he, he couldn't have lasted. And he didn't. It's too pure for this world. What's Jeffrey doing now? I wonder what was Jeffrey gonna come back? Speaking of cute boys that are just on Mad Men for an episode, let's bring Honestly. Jeffrey back. I mean, speaking of cute boys who are only on Mad Men for an episode, Conrad Hilton is back. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We got two was... ghosts in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, <laughs> such a sweaty transition. It was great. <laughs> In my head, my my memory keeps erasing the the lovely, very capable actor um, who plays Conrad or Connie, uh, and my mind immediately replaces him with John Waters. I don't know. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, it's just a slightly Tim Burton version of this man. What do you think is going to happen there, guys? I don't know. One opportunity at a time. <laughs> yeah, it, it it feels like this is where Don's running to, right? Like it, like another opportunity seemingly falls in his lap. He thought he Don he being Don thought that he was going to be this this you know transcontinental super advertising guy, you know, one month in London, one month in New York, whatever. And so it that didn't go his way. And okay, it's going to be status quo at Sterling Cooper. But now someone's put it in his head that he can be more and want more. And you have time man of the year, Conrad Hilton, calling him over to the presidential suite at the Waldorf Astoria. Is that then Zahn's next thing? I don't know. I don't know. But he entertained the meeting in the first place. It was really... The 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 way that the scenes were back-to-back, like, we knew about the catastrophe at Sterling Cooper, but Don didn't. And when this man asked Don what he wanted, he said, a chance at your business. But in my mind, I'm like, you can't bring him there. <laughs> There's blood everywhere. <laughs> like, I do you actually trust Sterling Cooper to handle this man's business? Because it's a shambles <laughs> just keep having your meetings in the presidential suite of the waldorf astoria which i'd be super fine with did you guys like find it super awkward though the way don had his little his little parable about the hungry snake it just seems so shoehorned in there and that's where i thought mm, is why is there Matthew repetitive Weiner? snake motifs in this episode uh... Well, I mean, <laughs> but Lane's but still nice. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I mean, Lane's uh, offer, offer, orders basically to go to, to Bombay, now present-day Mumbai, uh, was kind of a, one offer he couldn't have at the same time as the New York one, I guess. And it was shady as hell, so, like, a snake is appropriate. Mm-hmm. His face, I guess it too. wasn't, like, really shady. It's just, like, not nice Uh -uh. which i know you don't get to be nice in business but like but it's true his wife hated moving moving to new york but and they had just gotten settled he has a kid and he seems to really like it there and his little face of joy when he thought he was getting a reward in a box if somebody tells you something's a reward and a challenge just say Mm. no thank you i feel like i'm not gonna like it I will take my reward with no extracurriculars. It's a dead poisonous snake. Ta-da. <laughs> oh, God. I just think that those Englishmen are so fucking weird. And this is a bit more than it is like anything else. But like, I hate the way that they say I, ha- I hate that the subtitles say St. John and they call that man Sinjin. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it just adds to just the such a high level of absurdity in this episode already. It's too much for me to handle. Oh, Lord. I'm trying to, like, make it work in my head, but it's not happening. I just, it's... No, they're just weird. 
Um, I love that when Conrad Hilton calls, Don is like, what about right now? Because this is a mild case of really needing to run the fuck away, but I would like to. <laughs> so 15 minutes down to the hotel, we'll do just fine. And I thought Don was very, very, very cool when he was like, Connie, this is my profession. Oh, God. Like, okay, Don, you tell Conrad Hilton. I did respect that. Yeah, yeah, Connie didn't like that at first. He got a little, got a little testy back, and he's not used to being talked to like interesting. that. It's like in Jane Austen. Yeah. It's like in Pride and Prejudice when Darcy's like, "Ooh, who's this woman who keeps talking back to me?" It's kind of hot. <laughs> I hate it, but I like it. Same exact dynamic right there. I have one more thing about what goes down at Sterling Cooper. Peggy faints and Pete catches her and it like happens in the background it hardly matters but I was like ah that's funny (laughs) it was I thought it was kind of like interesting that you know it's totally cool that you have your female character still having totally human moments like that in fairness I thought Kinsey not Kinsey I thought Crane was gonna faint too when he saw the blood being washed off the window (laughs) yeah for real that prop that one was actually slightly more embarrassing I like Ken, who's just keeping his happy-to-be-nominated energy. <laughs> no, he, he definitely strikes me as someone who knows how to ride a John Deere tractor. Weirdly. <laughs> I have a bunch of jokes about that, and all of them are old country songs, so I'm just going to... You guys can guess. Um, have I told you two about the story when I drove... I don't think it was a John Deere, but it was like, would have been... Tractor that was a little bit older than that one in like a parade, and it was a standard. And I don't know how to drive standard, and I stalled it. Oops. Okay. Yeah. No. So I was working at this is back summer of two thousand and nine or summer two thousand eight. Summer two thousand and eight. I was working in the at the like local museum for the summer at the like rural kind of small city where I was was going to university at the time. And there's this big Jaywalkers Jamboree. It was this big kind of like summer fair parade. And the museum had all these tractors as local rural museums are, are want to do. And so all the staff got to got to drive one. So again, I, you know, growing up in a bigger city, of course, learned to drive, but did not learn to drive stick because we didn't have one. So I rode practice around the museum grounds, got pretty good at it, was feeling really confident in being able to drive this this 1950s standard on a tractor in the parade well of course i know i got all into it wore a nice plaid shirt had a straw cowboy hat and it was like super like city suckers right anyways we get to the parade we're driving down main street in camrose and the city and uh i saw the tractor yeah i end up not being able to get it started for was probably only like two or three minutes but it felt like an hour And then finally got it going again, and then there's this big, like, five-minute gap in the parade. It goes in two sections. Not my my finest moment. (laughs) (laughs) The first time my dad ever made me mow the lawn, the lawnmower died, like, forever, and he had to completely replace it. Was that also the last time? Are you riding on mower? (laughs) Cool. Like, it? oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. It was not the last time. It was not. Oh, the reason, well, I started talking about Ken because I like him, but also because (laughs) they're all, he is so smart, like, with just his, like, 
geniality because he's like, let's go say hi to the English people. Like, they didn't want to give us a promotion. That's fine. But we shouldn't let them think that we're, like, rude. So I just think he's a smart cookie. <laughs> Published author Ken Cosgrove. <laughs> um, okay. Now I'm done. Did we want to move to Bits and Bobs? Let's do Bits it. Bits and Bobs. Bits and Bobs. Okay. Well, I guess for starters, this episode was good. Um, it won a Directors Guild of America, or I should say Leslie Linka Glatter, won a DGA to the Directors Guild Award for Outstanding Direction in a TV Series. Um, this episode was also nominated but didn't win at the WGA, so the, the Writers Guild of America Awards. And it was nominated both for writing and directing at the Emmys, but I don't think it won those as well. So good on you, Leslie, for your wonderful direction that won you a DGA, because your guild says it was great. <laughs> and then the song that plays at the end is Song to Woody by Bob Dylan. So it's Bob Dylan writing new lyrics to a Woody Guthrie tune. And I did want to highlight um, kind of the kind of middle section of the song, kind of the part that plays. But, but a funny old world... A coming along, seems sick and hungry, it's tired and torn, looks like it's a dying and it's hardly been born. And that in the context of, yes, the changes at the office and different things that are coming, um, we know that there's a lot coming in, in history later in 1963, in a couple months, um, well, the Kennedy assassination and different things like that. And then we did have another Vietnam reference kind of, it was a little sweaty. It was a little shoehorned in because it started with, my dad won't shut up about Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, and they're talking about the draft and Smitty thinks, because he's got some connection, that the draft won't be a big thing and Vietnam won't be a big thing. So again, we kind of have seen that um, those themes coming up in Mad Men being in the background and it's starting to be a little bit more in our face and, and textual. So closing the episode with the uh, Bob Dylan song that talks about times and, and changing and, and different things in the context of the escalation in Vietnam, um, the Kennedy assassination upcoming and everything else like that I thought was interesting. So I wanted to highlight it here. And we also have a listener email, but before we get to what? that, yeah, before we get to that, did either of you have a bit and or a Bob? I actually didn't, which is, I'm a little bummed out, but we talked about everything that yeah. I wanted to talk about. Same Z. Oh, I will give a shout out to Pete Campbell's just entire face. Whenever Hooker is telling them about the presentations they have to do, his eyebrow is like all <laughs> up and he is like three minutes shook each. It. It's amazing. <laughs> all right. So we have a listener email from Todd. Todd says, first, love the podcast. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Obviously a fan of Mad Men as well. I came across this book, which is which is in the subject line of my email, Mad Men Carousel by Matt Zoller Seitz. Amazing book, book, amazing book, which not only details each episode, but annotated with detailed references regarding subtle pop culture from the area and where you may have seen the actors in other shows. I can't do it justice in this email. However, if you're a fan of the writing, direction, and cinematography, this book is a must-have. I also think it may help your show with its insights. Well, thank you for that, Todd, and it is... 
a book that I do have, and we have talked about it on the show. And my little my little secret is when I can only watch the episode once, I definitely pull <laughs> out that book to help me out. Once again, I enjoy your show. Well, thank you, Todd. And I if feel you like that be... book is probably spoilery. So what's actually like what I really do like about it is so there's footnotes and there's endnotes. So the footnotes are for first time watchers. Um, so it, it's more, you know, kind of the different kind of textual kind of, you know, textual analysis and the yeah. different references and things like that. But then there are endnotes as well that you don't have to read. They're at the, obviously there are notes at the end of each each kind of chapter or season section, I can't quite remember off the top of my head. Um, but then you can refer back to those later. So you can kind of read it as a first time watcher, mm-hmm. read it as a rewatcher and kind of get that whole, that oh, whole well, context. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually got this book too. And we started this thing. It's, it's great. And it brings a lot of like interesting, um, not necessarily the most obvious insight, which I, it it's, so it doesn't always take the easy route. And I agree. It's, it's full of good stuff. Cool. Well, these emails are exciting. Please yeah. please send us more. Thank you so much, Todd. <laughs> and if you want to be cool like Todd, you can email us at stillgreatbob at gmail.com. Yeah. And uh, we're on Twitter together at stillgreatpod. Um, if you are enjoying the show and you don't necessarily want to send us an email, that's fine. You can still rate and review us on the podcasting system of your choice. Um, before we tell you all where you can find us on the internet, uh, we would like to say a big thanks to DJ Empirical for our very groovy theme song. Uh, Matt, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me at on Twitter at at Mattyhue, M A T T Y H U G H. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on the Daily Nightly, my Jane Austen podcast, uh, where a friend of ours and I, Jesse, read through all the Jane Austen works. We actually um, are about to have an episode where we covered about as many. Pride and Prejudice adaptations as we can. So if you want to check that out, that'd be awesome. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter, not updating them, uh, at Pop Artery. And you can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, which is M-E-L-L-O-O-Yellow. Or you can find me co-hosting the Wild Pretty Things podcast. Our most recent episode um, talks about current things we've been watching per usual. And also an analysis of the body horror coming of age blew my mind. All right. Until next time, guys. We will catch you later. Swing and a miss. Over two today, Matt.